Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am privileged to be in dialogue today with Dr. Stuart Stuart Strange. He is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Yale National University of Singapore College in Singapore. We are here today to discuss his new book, Suspect Others, Spirit Mediums, Self-Knowledge, and Race in Multi-Ethnic Suriname, published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press 2021. Stuart, it's amazing to be with you today. Thank you very much, Ari. I really appreciate the invitation. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life? catalyzed the scholar you become as an adult? Um, well, I'm originally from Virginia, and um, I suppose that had a great deal of uh, bearing on my decision to become an anthropologist um, and also to work in the broader Caribbean region. Um, specifically, um, specifically um, it was my own sort of family's history, um, uh, my my father is from Low Country, South Carolina, which is obviously has deep historical ties to the Caribbean. That really was I think, conducive to my scholarship and trying to think about the Caribbean as a region, and also of course just being from Washington D.C. and having things like the Smithsonian so ready to hand. But the way I came to work in Suriname more specifically was because when I was an undergrad, I actually started out working in in Haiti, and then. I also spent some time in um, Sri Lanka. And in both cases, things just became so problematic, either because of a coup d'etat, um, other kinds of problems, the, the earthquake later, and then in, in, um, in Sri Lanka, the resumption of the civil war, that I was looking for someplace else to work and someplace that sort of combined both um, this my interest in in the Caribbean, the Black Caribbean, and uh, South Asia, and so Suriname is actually sort of unique in the Caribbean because it's the last place where the South Asian community, the descendants of indentured um, Indian workers who were brought starting in the 1870s by the Dutch to work in the sugarcane plantations, it's the last place these Indian diaspora communities actually continue to speak a South Asian language. They call Suriname; it's a dialect of Bhojpuri. Um, and that was one of those things that just sort of um, sort of drew me. But I'd had a long-term interest in maroons and maroon culture throughout the Americas as well. That really comes out of, as I say, this this um, family history um, of being a Southerner, but also of constantly seeing the ways in which stories of, of Black American resistance to slavery were uh, buried or suppressed or denied or forgotten. And so that very much uh, attracted me to working with the Maroon community as well. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Oh, well, you know, this book was, uh, it is a is based on my dissertation fieldwork, 
And like I think any uh, good dissertation, the book is trying to figure out what that what that entire experience was actually all about. Um, when I went to Suriname, I think I had uh, I was much more interested in a dynamic interchange shared kinds of cultural spaces, ritual spaces between um, African-American communities and uh, members of the Indian diaspora, particularly the Hindu diaspora, which are very present or present to a degree, an important degree, if you go to neighboring Guyana um, um, or in Trinidad and Tobago, for example, in which I experienced from just living in New York City and uh, um, visiting temples um, Guyanese temples there. But what immediately struck me when I came to Suriname was just the degree of explicit mistrust, um, discursive mistrust between these different communities. And I don't want to make too much of it because the what was interesting is that Afro-Surinamese, um, both Creoles or the descendants of people that remained on the plantations until plantation until formal abolition in 1863 in Suriname, and also the uh, descendants, the the Indian community, the Hindustani community, um, who was brought as his ancestors are brought as indentured workers. Um, both of them, in some really basic way, get along quite well on the everyday. And yet at the same time, there were these constant pervasive discourses about distrust. And in many practical senses outside of formal institutions, uh, these communities do not really interact or keep totally um, keep totally distinct social lives. And so what really prompted me to write the book was trying to figure out, well, what was actually going on, how to make sense of that. And during my field work, I ended up living in a community called Sunny Point, which is the largest maroon squatter settlement. But during that time, most of it was spent with, I actually lived in the compound of, of a Hindu, Hindustani family that lived immediately outside of the squatter settlement. So I spent my entire time going back and forth between these two different communities. And what was amazing is at one level, they did get along. They didn't really have that many in the way of problems, um, in fact. But the discourse that they shouldn't, right, the constant talk about failing to get along, um, the constant suspicion and mistrust that was always an undercurrent of the descriptions between the communities was something I just sort of had to figure out. Um, at the same time, I was very interested in just what spirit mediumship was doing. And so, of course, um, when you are in Suriname, spirit mediumship isn't in your face in any kind of way, but it's it's a practice that is very present. And when people um, experience crises, when people have problems, there is a very high, there's a very, you know, there's a very high likelihood that people will try to find recourses in these practices, which we might call spirit mediumship. And so just sort of the the having these things side by side, where I knew and did go, in fact, with um uh, Hindus visiting Afro-Surinamese spirit mediums, and at the same time, um, seeing the sort of complex, these practices sort of side by side, right, of Hindus, Afro-Surinamese people, 
the full sort of uh, uh, ethnic, ritual, religious complexity of Suriname side by side, just really tried to make me think about, well, how can I think about these things together? And how can I understand them um, in a way that doesn't, like a lot of the previous research of Suriname, just focus on one community or another and treat them as separate within a plural society? And so that's what this book is. It's really trying to think about what, what does both this pervasive suspicion that people were constantly talking about, if not necessarily living out in, um, in, in such dramatic ways. This is not, Suriname is not a place that is actually known for. In fact, they're very proud of they're very proud in Suriname of, of, of the degree of tolerance um, and sort of ethnic comedy that often exists. And yet at the same time, um, at the same time, there is that uh, real sense that um, people do constantly urge you to be mistrustful, to be suspicious. And that this is very much also part of the ritual domain. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Mm. It's an excellent question. Um, the story that the book tells is some of what I just sort of was laying out just now, which is really about, well, how can we rethink the relationships, this questions of, of rampant suspicion? I guess that the easiest way is uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that one of the things that was so often told to me when I went to Suriname by people often I didn't know was, you know, don't trust anybody, right? People might give you something. They're probably trying to poison, you know, give you food if you go and visit them. They're probably trying to poison you. Don't trust anybody, anything that other people tell you. You know, you have to uh, be careful. Now, interestingly enough, that very statement, of course, is also urging the the the, the myself as the the as the person who's addressed to trust the person who's telling me, which is you know part of sort of the complexity of all of these practices. But the narrative that I was trying to um, lay out in the book is to sort of say, well, what's going on with these pervasive, um, these these pervasive uh, invitations, these pervasive um, injunctions to uh, suspect other people? And one of the things that struck me as well was that since I went there originally to try to think about practices of spirit mediumship specifically in urban Suriname, where you do have this, the coexistence of these different ethnic and religious ritual traditions, was how much this suspicion played an integral role in relationship to these practices. And at the core of that, though, there was an even more interesting question, which I think is sort of sadly neglected in anthropology, which is just about self-knowledge. And so what's interesting is, you know, the, the moment one begins to speak about suspicion and mistrust, there also implies a certain sense about being able to know others, which then of course also reflects on what you can know about yourself and how you can know about yourself, what you are certain about um, as regards to your own knowledge that you can know who others are. And what I found in just working with the ritual traditions was that so much of it was then about these questions about how do you know others and how does what you can't know about others, how does that then reflect on what you can know about yourself? And this really answered two you know, big issues. This sort of um, came after two very significant issues and um, both sort of larger intellectual debate and anthropology specifically. And the first, of course, is sort of this question about what the enlightenment is and how we understand it, which is often represented 
um, um, or enlightenment and the post-enlightenment, which is often represented as sort of this discovery of self-knowledge, right? As an urge to liberate oneself, to recognize truths about oneself. And often then has, is either explicitly or implicitly then about sort of the uniqueness of these ways of reflecting on them, themselves to sort of European thought, right? And one of the stories I sort of talk about in the book is the degree with which the kinds of projects of imperial violence, of enslavement, were often, particularly later in the colonial period, um, justified precisely by these kinds of stories, that the people that are being enslaved, like the, the ancestors of Afro-Surinamese Maroons, um, or are people that are indentured, like the ancestors of the Hindustanis Suriname, are sort of somehow lacking self-knowledge, some sort of fundamentally lacking in self-knowledge. And what I was interested in was then, how is this process of trying to know others that seems to be so much so central to why um, Surinamese of all um, um, ethno-religious backgrounds, uh, why they visit mediums, um, was then also about how people create self-knowledge about themselves. And so the, the central uh, narrative of the book is precisely how these rituals reveal people what they don't know about themselves, such that they can then come to a new understanding of what those selves most fundamentally are. Um, so that's kind of the key. That was sort of what the, the, what the book and its, and its most basic is about. But this also touches on certain very uh, classical, very, very both classical and present anthropological issues, which often try to sort of displace this idea of the enlightened subject of the um, European autonomous individual and sort of say, well, in other places and the anthropological ethnographic record, uh, you can conceptualize what selves are and what persons are in very different ways. But one of the things that and there's much of that literature, um, many people stand out, particularly the work of Marilyn Strathern. But what sort of always bothered me about that literature was that there wasn't necessarily a great sense that there'd be descriptions of how people could imagine themselves not as a, um, an autonomous individual removed from social relationships, um, but would imagine themselves through their relations with others. But there was not necessarily an account of how people came to understand themselves in those ways, or an attempt to sort of understand what it might be like to live in a world in which you imagine yourself through these relations, through this need to know about others and the sense of vulnerability to being part of this larger social world. And so that's the other thing I was trying to do in the book, was to try to figure out, well, what is it like, right, to live in a world of pervasive suspicion as well as one in which um, your sense of what the self might be, might be very different, right? Might be sort of emphatically and foundationally relational. Um, what is your book's contribution to cultural anthropology? Well, I think I just sort of laid some of the, 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 the basics out there, but I guess that's a, that's a great question. So um, I think it's, it's threefold there. One is just to talk about trying to think together um, what it's like, what, what suspicion means, how it's related to this deeper uh, plantation colonial context, and how that continues to define 
uh, life in uh, amongst the descendants of precisely the victims of European, the most sort of exploitative forms of European uh, plantation colonialism. Um, and just sort of doing that, trying to think through, well, how does this history of white supremacy, of uh, notions of racial hierarchy create both sort of pervasive discourses of suspicion, and how does that then continue to define everyday lives and the way people think of themselves? The second one is the one I just, the, the, the second contribution is the one I just referred to, which is I'm trying to sort of spell out the ways in which people come to certain kinds of self-knowledge, the way in which they objectify certain models of the self, but also how they can feel that. And so that's one of the chapters of the book is about pain specifically and how pain acts as a revelation of precisely the sort of the, what you call sort of the polyphonic self, a self that contains multiple histories, that contains multiple social relations, that is not a bounded individual, but is rather this um, open being. Um, this is very much what I'm, um, right? And so I, I talk about that through the actual feelings of pain and how pain in itself can come to be understood as a feeling of this relatedness. And I think that's in in a lot of the work in um, cultural anthropology, as I just said, that that is, I think, neglected. The idea that there are other forms of personhood, other forms of selfhood is very much emphasized, but what those other forms of selfhood might actually feel like and how they become known is often neglected and sort of taken for granted. Now, thirdly, the, the big issue is about this question about, well, what do we do with self-knowledge, right? And how does it relate to um, these basic questions of ritual practice? And the point sort of being was that there's often this, this way in which practices like spirit mediumship get sort of taken up or stereotyped as sort of um, anti-modern, non-modern, outside of, let's say, the, the history of enlightenment thought or the world in which we live now. Um, and what I kind of wanted to do was to say, no, these are also practices of the creation of self-knowledge on par of anything we could think of, let's say, you know, um, various forms of uh, psychotherapy, various forms of philosophical inquiry, right? Um, and they're deeply related to suspicion. So, you know, when Paul Ricoeur uh, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur talks about schools of suspicion, particularly referring to someone like Nietzsche and Marx um, and also Freud, right? That you can say, well, there's this other kinds of ways in which suspicion is being worked out in these ritual practices that actually have some overlap in some ways, but are also very, very different in the kinds of selves and the kinds of image of self-knowledge and what that means and what's important about it are constructed. And I really wanted to say, you know, not to reduce these in a, a more classical anthropological way to, let's say, just psychoanalysis or something else, but really to say these are similarly robust ways of actually objectifying logics, you know, objectifying selves and self-knowledge, and that we really need to see them in parallel and treat them, right, as, as similarly robust and similarly sophisticated practices for making selves. There are some very interesting characters presented in your book mm -hmm. one of them is priya mm -hmm. what can you tell us about priya ah uh, why so, is she notable well this is of course all the names uh, with a few exceptions are where i was requested to not make them pseudonymous are pseudonyms 
But um, uh, Priya was the um, middle-aged uh, Hindustani Hindu woman whose family I lived with and whom I was sort of closest to. And she was, you know, absolutely invaluable for my ability to do this work and was, um, you know, I'm still very, very close with her. Um, but it was sort of her who really gave me the insight into so much of the actual dynamics, right? Particularly of the relationship between Hindustani community and the Afro-Surinamese community, and was also the one who just sort of told me, right, gave me the sort of the most emphatic sense of uh, what it was like, what it was like to live on where she lived, which was literally on this boundary between this maroon squatter settlement and her own, um, and her own compound, Hindustani compound. And so she was very important, both because of the, you know, she accompanied me to visit mediums, introduced me to certain practices, but also just guided me through my understanding of what Hindu Surinamese and Surinamese life is actually like. And so she was just an invaluable, absolutely invaluable sort of um, guide and teacher. She was also the person that did the most to teach me Saranami Hindustani. So I'm still very grateful for her. For that. Can you tell us about Guru Kisundial? Mm -hmm. What is so, notable and noteworthy about him? Ah, excellent. So, yeah, Guru Kisundial, who unfortunately passed away two years ago, um, uh, very uh, quite young, unfortunately. Um, he was the leader or the guru of the main um, temple that I did so much of this work with. So in the book, there are sort of two different Hindu communities that I end up focusing on because they're intermarried and they live side by side, but they're also not reducible to one another and have their own kinds of complex frictions. Uh, the first is um, Hindustanis or Surinamese uh, Hindus, and the second is Guyanese Hindus. And so Guyana is the country uh, neighboring to Suriname, um, to the west of Suriname, and has been until recently the much poorer of the two nations. And many Guyanese have then migrated to Suriname in search of work. Um, and one of the practices they've brought with them is a particular kind of organized Hindu spirit mediumship, which is often called um, uh, Shakti, um, sometimes called Kalimai. Um, and so Guru Kusundial was the guru and main medium of one of these temples, probably the most robust temple um, in terms of its uh, regular devotees um, in, uh, that I worked with in, in Paramaribo, in Suriname's capital. And so he was he's very interesting because he was trying to live the life of a Hindu renunciate in a place where this as a paradigm had largely ceased to exist or be recognizable, unlike in South Asia. And a lot of his, it was both both because he was trying to live this sort of life of exquisite piety, of inspirational piety, but also was always constantly being pulled back into the workings of this temple. Um, as well as the fact that he'd become, had gained this, um, uh, this position through his own sort of extensive suffering, both um, in relationship to his own family, to sort of a, um, 
uh, an abusive childhood, um, that he sort of was the one who sort of brought me into and taught me the most about these traditions, both by opening up the temple for me, letting me become a member of the temple, but also just taking the time to talk with me and teach me about all of these practices. Can you tell us about Anjali? Why is Anjali a person of prominence? Sure, Anjali, um, so is Priya's mother. And she's there, and she's a very interested and complex figure in the book. And that's because um, she was often the most vociferous in her anti-Blackness, but at the same time was also a um, spirit medium who claimed to speak for, to become possessed by being a medium of afro surinamese spirits, and who was also was deeply conversant with afro surinamese popular practices. Um, and sort of devised her own very hybrid Hindu bhakti devotional kind of dynamic that then also was very much uh, combined with or continuous with a large number of sort of popular afro surinamese ritual idioms and practices. And so she's most important in the book in the final chapter, which is about race, which was the most difficult chapter to write in the book. And she sort of stands in um, for me. She embodies a lot of the com complexities and the contradictions of both trying to define very different ontologies of selfhood that both is is very is this the emphasis of both the Hindu practice as well as the um, Afro Surinamese maroon practice and Juka maroon practice, um, but also reflects many of the sort of the predominant um, racial prejudices that I was trying to think through and to understand on, and so she sort of embodies to me this contradiction of a, a person who can both sort of um, performatively enact this very different understandings of self, these much more open interrelated ideas of what this, what self is, um, what self, what the self is and what, what selfhood can be, but who at the same time does so within the strictures of these notional racial hierarchies and hierarchies of uh, racial value that are very much the subject, the everyday subject of 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 political competition and censor censure um, and contention in everyday Surinamese life. And so she is just very fascinating, both by being this sort of she's sort of a magnetic presence. Um, at the same time, she also was sort of a walking paradox, right? And she really embodied sort of the problems of that I was trying to understand in this 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 field work, um, but was also, at least to me, you know, quite a um, um, quite a generous and kind person. And as these 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 questions off so often are, it's that it's that tension between the sort of basic humanity of the person and the way in which they, they in some embody these very complex sets of social relations and issues. And so 
she was the person that came closest to really sort of summarizing the tensions that I don't know if I've, I don't think I've necessarily managed to resolve or if they're even resolvable, but that I was trying to think through in writing the book. Who are Da Sacco and Matres? So Da Sacco and Matres were the, were a married couple um, who are in Juca Maroons. And so I, I should say um, that Suriname is this very complicated place because it has multiple different uh, Afro-Surinamese um, ethnic groups. And so there are Creoles who I mentioned earlier, then there are also these different Maroon groups. And so Maroons are the descendants of escaped enslaved Africans. And there are six different of these formally recognized groups in Suriname. And I work mainly with the Njuka, who are the second largest of these groups and the first of these groups who actually gained their formal autonomy from Dutch um, imperialism in, um, in the 1760s, early 1760s. And so Dasaku and Matres are both urban Njuka spirit mediums, they call it Njuka Obiaman. And they were, um, I, I came, became familiar with them because they were just so popular. They are, had a constant stream of people that wished to consult with them. And so they worked together and each one of them had their own primary uh, possessing spirits who um, would possess them, speak through them and communicate sort of healing advice to the people that came to see them. And so Dasako was the spirit medium of a forest spirit, an Ampuku spirit, um, and Matres was her main spirit, not her only spirit, but her, her main consulting spirit was a um, Native American spirit um, who they called Pa Kojo. And so they were um, just instrumental in letting me sit with them, sit through these consultations, record the consultations in detail, and then just talk to them about all of these details to understand it. And so they were the, the two people. They were not alone. I worked with a, numer a number of different mediums, and Juka mediums, as well as Hindu mediums, but they were the ones that did the most of sort of letting me into their practices, explaining to me the practices to the extent that they could explain it in terms of uh, questions around sensitive ritual knowledge. Um, and so they play a really foundational role in the book of sort of um, being the main actors in these events of healings and these events of the revelation of self, particularly a specific Njuka paradigm of self that really is one of the, the key topics of the book. Can you explain what you mean by relatedness? How does the concept of relatedness help us to understand what your book is describing? How is relatedness understood in Suriname among Hindus and other communities? Uh, that's a, a superb question and a very difficult question. Um, by relatedness, I was trying to talk through, imagine, think through what it means if we think about ourselves not as discrete individual actors who pre-exist our social relations, but primarily as beings who are defined by our social, our relationships, right? And for both Njuka and Hindus, these relationships are not simply with other living human beings, 
but extend to a variety of, of more than human, other than human agents, uh, spirits, deities, uh, animals, plants, etc. potentially, potentially. This is a complicated set of questions. And so relatedness to me is sort of a dynamic property of which relations, right, are taken to define um, what the self can be, what selfhood is, who a person should be and can be, what obligations they have, um, such that then the self as the sort of complex dynamic entity is defined first and foremost in, in relationship or by reference to these specific set of relations. So relatedness there is, is this, um, it's a way of trying to, maybe a little bit too vaguely, of denominate whatever that complex property is, right? Of understanding yourself as a bundle of intersecting relations, but also how those relationships make you feel, how they produce certain kinds of vulnerability, how they also um, circumscribe what you pay attention to, who you pay attention to, uh, what kinds of responsibilities you have. And so I think the best way to understand relatedness as I use it is precisely to think about this as, as, as a uh, dynamic and fluid property that people are always trying to work out. You know, who should I be accountable to? Who am I vulnerable to? What must I do to understand myself and to secure myself when it is in some sense constantly subject and open to a changing set of dynamics, a changing set of um, of interconnections and interdependencies with others. What is the difference between a spirit and a deity? What are the nuances that make one different from another? Mm, that's a great question. I, I have a little footnote at the beginning of the book where I say that both of these terms are highly imperfect. Um, the late... Um, Anthropologist Marshall Solins, uh, one of his last articles, he talks, tries to, you know, chucks out this concept altogether and first talk about metapersons, right? Persons that are sort of, a, a persons that are above our everyday corporeal human identity. Um, I chose to use spirit and deity simply for the sake of clarity. Um, I thought, you know, um, and also, to reflect what is an emphasis, a different sort of emphasis on the character of the agents that I think is at least partially, if very imperfectly, uh, denominated by the English term spirit and deity. So a spirit, and I think we has this connotations in our everyday use, a spirit is a more, once again, sort of a meta person, a greater than our um, everyday, ordinary, waking, conscious, human sense of uh, sense of being, uh, kind of being, or agent, but is also not one that is invested with, I should say, um, more greater than, more transcendental uh, power, right? Who doesn't have, let's say, the same kind of fundamental cosmological role that deities would have, and also doesn't inspire the kinds of ritual devotion that we tend to associate with a deity as well. And so this is important because the way in which Afro-Surinamese people relate to spirits is much more as just sort of more 
powerful persons, people who you often would prefer not to have relationships with, but to whom you inevitably will have relationships with. And so these are both embodied in people, the, the terms of, of, of conception where one is born, they're sort of part of ourselves, but also just in wandering around the world, we'll stumble over and you know um, uh, spirits and we have to deal with them. And we deal with them, you're gonna deal with them first and foremost as, as kinds of persons who you can speak with, who understand you to some degree, even if their power is much greater. I have a quote in the book where I talk where it's, it's from a spirit who says, you know, basically the difference between you and me is that I can travel in an instant, right? Or that I can see, and that this is very important for the themes of the book, that I can see into the concealed thoughts of human beings. But that doesn't necessarily inspire a greater sense of reverence for them. It doesn't necessarily um, make them transcendental in a radical sense. So they are, in some sense, importantly, beyond human understanding and have access to knowledges that is beyond human faculties. But they are not, um, in some sense, the, you know, the, the, the subjects of any greater piety. Um, whereas in the Hindu tradition, in this kind of bhakti tradition, the bhakti devotionalism, that is very much at the center of present day uh, um, Hindu mediumship in the Guyanas, that kind of piety, that kind of devotionalism is central. And so because of that, I you know, chose to use the word deity in referring to Hindu practice. It's also the term they actually use. They use the English. Guyanese uh, Hindus in particular speak English and they use the word deity. So that made it easier. But at the same time, the word deity has all these connotations of a kind of, um, of, a kind of reverence that is really critical to uh, Hindu understandings of these practices. Even if, in a lot of respects, in regards to the everyday practice, the deities are represented as they call them, you know, they call them mother and baba, mother and father, and they represent as actually similar kinds of beings who can be spoken to and negotiated with much in the same way as Afro-Surinamese people deal with spirits. Nevertheless, I thought the distinction was important. It was one people made themselves, and it was one that sort of as imperfectly as the English terms uh, convey it, does get part of the way to sort of thinking about the difference between these, the, the ontological differences between these two categories. What does your book teach us about consciousness? What is your book's contribution to, to debates surrounding the philosophy of mind? Uh, that's a really good and very difficult question. Um, I don't know in the grand scheme of things if it if it if it if how much it contributes to these these issues, but I think um, in reference to the earlier question about relatedness, that that probably comes closest, which is to say that any attempt to understand the human mind or the phenomenon of consciousness, what it's like to be a a self, um, outside of this kind of dynamic focus on relations and the way in which our sense of self is always and some sense irreducibly relational um, will be an incomplete description. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is to show how much self-knowledge depends precisely on these interactions, right? Interactions with spirit mediums who then can offer 
kinds of knowledge uh, from the perspective of spirits or deities that's not otherwise available. And I think that's really fundamental. And it's also one that helps us understand the relationship between self-knowledge and ritual practices, but also various kinds of therapeutic practices more generally um, in a better sense. And that often when we talk about the mind or consciousness, we want to treat them as somehow things that are separate from these dynamics, these things that are separate from the kinds of dialogues, the kinds of interactions, the kinds of, um, how should we say, interactive ecologies that actually shape what any kind of knowledge we possibly can have and any kind of self we possibly have. So as I say, I think it's a fairly, I think it's a fairly um, probably minor contribution, but I think that point is central and critical to any kind of uh, um, sufficient uh, theory of consciousness and theory of mind. What does your book teach us about dream interpretation? <laughs> oh, that's a really difficult question. I, uh, um, well, at its at its basic, the book itself thinks about dreams and dream interpretations as part of um, the similar dynamics that I was just speaking of, right? Which is that a dream for both Njuka and Hindus that I work with, um, dreams can be and often are, but not all, not all dreams and not all the time are seen as um, re revelations of the relationships that actually compose people. And so dreams are understood to be sort of um, thinly concealed revelations of which relationships matter to people and how they should matter. And, you know, this is not unique to Suriname in the ethnographic archive, such accounts are fairly widely, uh, widely distributed and might be the more, one of the more common ways people actually, humans actually interpret dreams. But what it does do is it tries to think about the dream not as an arena of a private consciousness, but as a social phenomenon, as one that is always open and receptive to these much more basic sets of ways in which we relate to other people and how who we understand ourselves to be is defined by those relationships. And so I, I don't know about a larger question of dream interpretation, but I know that in practice, this does sort of help underscore that sense that, well, self-knowledge is always a social phenomenon. And indeed, what's so fascinating, what particularly, um, uh, particularly in Juka people say is that when you have a dream that's a revelation of a relationship, you yourself will never be um, able to interpret it without going to other people. And certain people have a reputation as being better at interpreting dreams, but it's generally the shared sense, right? That my dream is addressing a wider community and that to understand it, I need the input and feedback precisely of these, this wider community as well. And I think that in itself has much to say, much to contribute about the way we think about what dreams are and what kind of significance they have. What do you mean by racecraft? How does this concept play out in Suriname's society? What does this concept teach us? Um, well, the term itself is derived from the work of uh, um, Barbara and Karen Field. They have a book called Racecraft. And I liked the term to the extent that, as they say it, that racecraft is um, about what 
is a concept that um, is about sort of preemptively knowing other people, right? It's this sense that it's something like witchcraft, which is what they're very they're very consciously thinking of. Um, it's something that you do to other people, right? It's a accusation that is in some sense indefensible. And I like the idea because it talks about a practice and doesn't necessarily talk about racist. Um, it doesn't necessarily try to um, specifically talk about um, what I think specifically in uh, the United States and Canada, we often think about in terms of the problems of, of, of racist and the kinds of moral problems that are attended with that label. Um, but really sort of tries to think about what is racialization, uh, what are racial accusations as practices, uh, and what kinds of social consequences uh, do they have. And so I was using it in terms of the book because I saw it as very much of a part and parcel of this wider discourse around suspicion. And it's also an attempt to um, alleviate that suspicion. So what goes on in Surinamese racecraft, and this is interesting, it is often literally in, you know, actually in parallel with witchcraft as well, that this racialization of others as sorceress, as the originators of various kinds of sort of assault magic is, is, is completely pervasive, at least with people that I, that I worked. And I think racecraft gets to this, the heart of this as a practice that at one level is something that has been directly inherited from the real intense, violent brutality of this, the colonial plantation past, right? Which of course was about inflicting race, you know, racecraft on all of the, the ancestors of, of, um, current Surinamese, but that also talks about the way in which Surinamese pick up a practice that is about trying to say who others are, who ethnically, racially, yeah, um, others are, um, and ways that also then um, clashes with the kinds of the problematics of spirit mediumship, right? And so if in spirit mediumship, one of the major dynamics that I found both with Hindu and Injuka spirit mediums um, was that when people would go um, about problems, problems as diverse as you know unemployment, um, a lack of energy, um, sickness, a recent death in the family, marital troubles, almost anything that we might think of about in terms of suffering they would often go looking for an identity of a person that had caused this problem. Um, and what the mediums would often tell them would be that, yes, but really you have another issue altogether, right? Uh, really you are misunderstanding the relationships that most fundamentally define you. And this would also then often lead to reassessment of the self, right? Of a reobjectification of the self of the person that was uh, seeking, right? Seeking a description of their cause 
of their own misfortune in another person. And so spirit mediumship there, and this is also very much in the practice of spirit mediumship, where if I go and see a spirit medium, what is apparent, of course, is that their, their body is incontestably of that person, and yet they are no longer that person, that there is a fundamental misrecognition that, that the spirit mediumship, the practice invites, but also um, undermines, right? And sort of saying, I think I know the spirit medium through their everyday appearance, but in fact, they are not that, that person or they're not that person in any simple way. And so in spirit mediumship is this con it's this revelation, right? That anything I think I know about others or myself is probably much less stable than I can assume it is. And that it's that very act of going and talking to, let's say, spirits and deities that have this more um, definite, a more cosmic or encompassing perspective that is necessary for me to learn about who I truly am, which relationships really matter for me, and which ones are causing both my successes and my failures. And so racecraft for me is very much sort of the inverse of this. Racecraft is the sense that um, you always already knew who others are simply as a matter of their heredity and phenotypical appearance, right? Um, and that's in some sense what was constantly, I was constantly being told, you know, you know who an Indian person is, or you know who a Maroon is simply because they're Indian or Maroon. And it's that preemptive knowing saying that I know you, who you are, because you are a member of this hereditary group, because you look this way and that then, and you can't contest that, right? Um, that you have no recourse, you have no recourse to offering a defense, right? That makes witchcraft so um, sort of pernicious and dangerous. And indeed, I think, you know, the um, racecraft could also was often used as sort of to establish a sense of certainty in a discursive context in which certainty was often much more questionable because whatever else you might know, you could always assume if you were using these logics that you would know what, let's say, this ethnic or racial other most fundamentally was like, even if they don't actually behave that way at all, which is you know often the case, right? Um, and so for me, racecraft, it was a tool that then allowed me to be compare these things that we don't tend to think about in the same, um, in the same perspective, ideas about race and these kinds of ritual practices. Um, but was also about just me really trying to understand what's going on when Surinamese tell these stories about others and how does it relate to this broader colonial history in which race and say the shadow or the haunting of white supremacy, this imagination of there being a definite racial hierarchy, even though in Suriname this doesn't actually exist anymore and can never be established because it's so diverse and because of just the, the sheer complexity of such a multi-racial, multi-ethnic and multi-religious society, um, that racecraft was the best term that I found to sort of help me understand these things in, in practice, right? Without necessarily uh, immediate lighting on any kind of judgment about them. What is your book's contribution to comparative religion and to contemporary academic religious studies? 
Hmm, that's another excellent question. Um, in terms of comparative religion, I think at its most basic, because it has been a book that just takes takes sort of comparison not for granted, but it but it is its most basic um, its most basic conceit is that you know sort of comparison is inevitable and thinks through not simply the, these uh, these two different traditions as as how they're different and how they're the same, but as things that are actually defining themselves through their their coextensiveness by the fact that these are actually you know, being practiced by literal neighbors of one another, that these things are visible um, and engageable by members of these different traditions, that they're constantly feeding into one another, right? They're constantly creating both logics of opposition, but also um, dynamics of borrowing um, and cross-pollination. And so I think from that sense, one of the, the, the most valuable lesson, I would say, for comparative religion would be in some sense to both put the comparison at the center, but seeing it as a as something that is actually practical, not imagining pre-existing, pre-established traditions that are somehow hermetically sealed, but is actually recognizing these things as defined by the borders, right? That actually are creating the idea that there these traditions are important. They need to be sort of argued over or claimed, right? That they can be better or they can be worse. And so I think in that sense, it's that taking a compare, you know, comparison as um, as a tool that is sort of elementary to everyday practice, right? Elementary to everyday ritual practice, um, elementary to the way in which anybody understands the traditions in which they are part of. As for the question about religious studies, I think everything I just said about comparative religion is true there as well. But um, I think it's most valuable for religious studies in the sense that I'm trying to think about these practices that we tend to call religious, but without any explicit real, real, um, reference to the normative assumptions that we have about where religion should be, how it should operate, what kinds of um, uh, topics or interests um, religion is normally taken to address. And so what's most important about spirit mediums is that this is an elementary sort of epistemic technology for understanding who people are. And as I say, it has as much credibility in my mind as any other ways in which people try to sort of come to knowledge about themselves, right? Um, and also take that this idea that self-knowledge is important right, for, for granted, right, as a, as a key, key concern. And so this is important for religious studies, precisely because I think if we're going to make strides in religious studies, we, what we really have to do is sort of decenter the concept of religion. It's not to abandon it or to just fundamentally critique it. That's often done in religious studies. But to recognize the diverse practices that are normally grouped under the rubric of religion to see what kinds of what kinds of active roles they play in creating the social relationships that really matter to people, to creating senses of who they are and which obligations, uh, which forms of responsibility, um, define what those relationships actually are. And so it really creates a sense that religion is is both 
fundamental to, to, to human social life, but is never reducible, right, to social life in any specific sense. That so there's um, a dynamic interplay of sort of practices, practices of revelation in this case specifically, and what we can know about who we are and others. I think that's kind of uh, what it's most important. The other thing that it really contributes, I think, to religious studies is that it's also just looking at these themes from a place that, for the most part, is just left out of discourses about religious studies. A place like Suriname doesn't normally um, come to the fore, right? People tend to think about the big traditions and the more well-established places. And so a place like Suriname, where you have all these traditions really next to one another in constant interchange and in constant sort of um, dynamic uh, embrace and rejection, um, really helps us understand these as dynamic, interpenetrated, interdependent traditions that are not simply sort of uh, floating around um, in the world uh, predefined or sort of hermetically sealed, but are ones that are constantly in, in complicated dialogue, um, both with each other and with the historical forces, the forces that have made them things like um, plantation and uh, plantation colonialism and white supremacy. How does your book advance our understanding of race? That that is something I I would sort of say I have more. I have more difficulty saying that I make any uh, truly novel or original um, contributions. I have tried to, to the best of my ability, uh, do my best at describing the social context of race and particularly of the accusations associated with race in contemporary Suriname as I experience them. And um, I think, in trying to offer an ethnographic description of race and one that also compares it to other practices um, of trying to know others like spirit mediumship, it then can provide sort of new perspectives on what keeps practice processes of racialization alive, why they appeal to people and people precisely in these historically racialized communities, as they say very much the historical and um, you know, continued victims of um, things like violent white supremacy, enslavement, um, um, and all of its extremely pernicious after effects. Um, but beyond that, I, I would be more, I, I guess I'd be more, more tentative, right? I mean, I think a lot of what I say really just is focusing on the extent to which uh, race remains a, a a central um and you know often profoundly um damaging set of discourses in the contemporary present but that precisely because of that as an anthropologist we have to sort of empirically engage it to try to understand what exactly is going on and to understand that in a variety of diverse circumstances. And of course, let's say anti-Maroon racism or anti-Indian racism in this part of the Caribbean is not what most of um, uh, the North American public would be imagined about sort of what's most elementary to questions around, around race. And yet, of course, is intimately tied up with the longer term ways in which almost all of our idioms of race date back to racial racial enslavement and the 
the violent inheritance of the Atlantic slave trade. So yeah, I don't know um, if I could sort of give a any simple answer to that. I think the the question is that it is trying to just sort of work out races and empirical phenomena in this one part of the world, such that we can think about it as not one established um, a known practice, but it's something that contains a variety of different practices which keep ideas about race and racialization um, present and um, hegemonic in so many people's lives, even um, in the lives of people who've been most victimized by the long-term history of racial uh, racialization and its 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 relationship with um, historic projects of white supremacy. Um, yeah, I, I think there's also this 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 important question around well, how does making the you know comparison between ritual ways of knowing the selves and others then compare to racial ways. And I think that contributes to some new sort of a new vantage point about how they're similar and how they're different. But um, beyond that, this is more of a, a way of thinking through all the different ways in which race can in fact work and all the complexities that are associated with it. How is Hindu culture in Suriname similar or different from Hindu culture in mainland India? What are the unique features of Hindu religious culture in Suriname vis-a-vis -vis other locations in the Hindu diaspora? That's a, an excellent question, though, a very sweeping one. Obviously, um, even whether or not Hinduism in itself is any kind of unitary phenomena um, is an immensely contentious one. And so, you know, there's, you could say there's many Hinduisms. And of course, India is a massive place. And um, incredibly diverse, as are the different Hindu diasporas. Um, it depends on how you compare it. I would say in terms of diasporic Hinduism, Suriname is actually more similar to the other, other places that were defined by a Hindu labor diaspora, indentured labor diaspora. So if you look at ritual practices, in my own research, you know, I, I read a lot about places like Fiji or Mauritius, um, as well as the Caribbean, particularly Guyana and Trinidad. And so they all do have um, similarities because the populations came from the same part of India, mainly the Gangetic Plain, um, specifically the state of Bihar and eastern portions of Uttar Pradesh. Um, at the same time, or generally in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So there's a lot of sort of general cultural affinities there a specific focus on Vaishnav um, devotionalism, specifically a sort of set emphasis on a particular kind of an increasingly politicized Hinduism that was deeply influenced by uh, Hindu reformers like the um, uh, Dayanand Sarasvati, who led the Arya Samaj, um, and the creation of this tradition that's now called throughout India, particularly in the, the Hindi-speaking Norse, Sanatandharam, or sort of, you know, um, which was this orthodox, uh, more or less orthodox Hindu practice that is still, in some sense, uh, reformed in reaction to attempts by Hindu reformers, more radical Hindu reformers, to sort of change the basic character of popular Hindu practice. Um, what makes it different, I, I think, um, at its most 
basic, and I don't really want to get into too much detail because it's a complicated set of questions, is that um, a lot of the kinds of questions about Hindu devotionalism and Hindu practice elsewhere um, will be swept up in terms of questions about um, caste and ritual patronage and access, uh, um, as well as in terms of different, uh, different, very different uh, lineages or traditions of who, which deities are addressed and how they're addressed. And what happens in Suriname and to some extent in Guyana um, is that Hinduism both becomes becomes an ethnic religion, it becomes a genetic religion, something that is almost exclusively about, a religion that is about being passed down, about reproducing Hinduness um, in the next generation, um, and also one that becomes almost completely detached from caste, so that um, the term jat um, or jati, which in Northern India tends to demarcate caste in Suriname now just is, uh, is synonymous with ideas about race. And so Hindus become an ethno-racial group, um, identity that's mainly, that's particularly fixated on Hindu practice for reproducing that sort of sense of, of, of collective difference. And in doing so, it worships sort of the, 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 um, the pantheon of Hindu deities has contracted in, in notable ways, and the ritual has become much more sort of standardized. Um, um, there's lots of ways in which this this uh, you know these there's lots of other differences that I could I could I could get at, but it's sort of those differences which I think stand out most notably. So that the emphasis really is on the household, individual Hindu households, and the way in which Hindu ritual having patronage relationships with Brahmin priest that allows them to reproduce the sense of Hindu um, ethnic difference or ethnic exceptionalism. Um, that's what I really think is sort of the, the great difference. Now, um, I could go into a lot more detail, but I think that's, you know, it's best, that's best observed in the book or some of the articles uh, that I've um, written about this topic. What role do guilt and culpability play in your book? What are your book's insights regarding guilt and culpability? So, yeah, guilt, I, I'm less certain about. Um, the um, Interestingly enough, I think the sort of predominant sense, both within sort of um, the, the discourses around spirit mediumship and with discourses around race is in some sense a um, um, a diminishment of this idea of guilt. You people would tend to go to mediums or invoke, you know, uh, racial language precisely in some sense to implicate someone else, right? Others is ultimately responsible in some complicated way. However, and this is uh, very much the case with mediumship, this might actually then apply a collective hereditary guilt. So one of the things that's distinctive about afro surinamese uh, maroon practices is this idea of these avenging spirits that are called kunu. Um, and these, everyone within a given family, a lineage uh, within a family is collectively accountable to these spirits. And so when people would go and often see spirit mediums, they would actually discover that they were actually 
responsible or guilty, even if they hadn't actually specifically done us given act, right? But collectively responsible or accountable to uh, one of these spirits. And of course, that's just a very different perspective on how we understand what guilt is and how it affects us. Now, the question of culpability, I think, is much more to the point, right? Because ultimately, whether or not you are guilty or feel guilty or feel that you are immediately implicated in the practice, discovering that you are, in some sense, on the hook for, uh, for it, right, uh, accountable for it, responsible for it in some sense, is to discover this relational, these the relations that actually define the self. And so responsibility is really fundamental to the book and to the practices that I describe, um, precisely because so much of spirit mediumship was about forcing people to take certain kinds of responsibility, even if they were going and looking for, you know, basically accusations against other people. And even if the spirit medium was sort of bar that bear that out and say, yes, you know, your cousin has bewitched you, that this would often then force you to other forms to um, think about yourself as first and foremost, um, a matrix of relationships, often with your family, often with your own family history, um, and the spirits that define that family history, such that you could then defend yourself, that you could recognize how you're responsible for these other relationships, such that you could defend yourself from these additional relationships. So responsibility is really, really basic because it's about that sense of how would I know who I am if I don't know to whom I'm responsible, right? And this goes back to your earlier question about relatedness. What does it mean to be related? What is the dynamic property of relations? Well, often it's this question about at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, when I'm I or those close to me are suffering, how is that responsibility assessed? That will tell me about uh, both what that, you know, what those relationships feel like, but also which relationships matter the most. I think that's kind of the key question about responsibility. And indeed, this is sort of central to mediumship itself, is that the mediums themselves come to mediumship because the spirits are often forcing them to take responsibility for their role of speaking for other relations. And that's precisely then what they convey to so many of the people that consult with them. What are the unique features of Black culture and religious culture in Suriname? What are the unique features of Maroon culture in Suriname vis-a-vis -vis other locations in the African diaspora? That's a great question. And much like your earlier question about the Indian diaspora, it's just, it's just, um, it's a really huge question. Um, at its simplest, Suriname is just different. And it's different because, um, A, the sort of phenomenal success of Maroon communities, of um, that you had so many different populations that escaped and were able to um, force the Dutch to recognize their autonomy and establish um, establish um, sort of unique um, African-American cultures in the rainforest in Suriname. And a lot of that has to do with this unique, um, um, the unique um, geography and ecology of Suriname. It still to this day is the highest proportion of virgin rainforest population of any country in the world. Um, and within that, then there's also that sense that you get 
multiple different Maroon ethnic groups, as well as different um, African-American ethnic groups. And that's kind of one of the things that for the most part, or until very recently, has not been the predominant phenomenon, right, um, um, in the Americas, um, where Blackness has become its own sort of ethno-racial category, um, and as often has these sort of um, culturally homogenizing tendencies within any given population, where Blackness is understood to be um, both a feature of a racial identity and a cultural identity, and those are, those are um, completely identical. In Suriname, that is not the case. Um, Maroons and Creoles are notably different. They speak different languages. They have related and yet very manifestly different ritual practices. Um, and they have different ways of understanding what those practices are. Now, I would say the most important thing, uh, for my mind, is just the fact that because Maroons um, have, were so successful, and indeed they're increasingly becoming, there will be probably very shortly a plurality of the Surinamese population, so the single largest ethnic group within that, in the Surinamese population, that they've also managed to create a degree of political autonomy that's fundamentally associated um, with this, these ritual practices that really is unique. And so it really helps us to see what sort of self-liberated African-American uh, communities are like and how they actually went about imagining what freedom is and imagining precisely through these very different ritual and political ways. And that I think is incredibly valuable. Can you explain what you mean by mediumship? Can you explain this concept and its significance? Sure. Um, yeah, it's a difficult concept. I mean, when we use it now with spirit mediumship, it really refers to, it comes out of the re religious phenomenon of spiritualism in 19th century America and Europe, um, in which um, it was understood that people were literally speaking for, remediating the voices of the dead. Um, you know, there's lots of terms that that could also use. Some people, when they talk about uh, maroon spirit mediums, they also use H.V. Todeman Veltzen, probably the great greatest um, ethnographer of the Njuka. He would talk about um, mediums as shamans. And, you know, you could use that concept as well. For me, spirit medium is just the most uh, stripped down because it really is about getting to the embodied practices of communicating, of speaking as and speaking for um, a being that is not that is not visible and yet is present. And so for me, using spirit mediums, uh, the term spirit medium and spirit mediumship was valuable precisely because it really gets us to focus on what, what is mediation? How does it actually work, right? So anyway, at its basic, right, all we mean when we talk about spirit mediumship is that practice about speaking for, becoming a spirit, speaking for, animating their voice, conveying messages from this more encompassing perspective that is given by, um, let's say, the, the, the invisibility of a spirit, the greater power of a spirit or a deity. Um, yeah. Can you comment on the history of the relationship between Hindus, Maroons, and indigenous Indians or Amerindians in Suriname? 
How have these relations changed and evolved in modern and contemporary times? That's um, another very complicated, uh, as I say, unfortunately with Suriname, everything is just rather, I mean, I guess it's true everywhere, but in Suriname, it always seems that much more so. Um, so really the relationship has to do with the terms of historical entry into Suriname. So obviously Amerindians are indigenous people in, in, in Suriname, and it's ambiguous about how densely populated Suriname was inhabited by indigenous people when um, first the English and the Dutch um, are colonizing it in the mid 17th century. But um, the relationship between Amerindians and Maroons has been has complicated. Um, at one level, in the minds of, let's say, most coastal people, including most um, Hindustanis, and um, they're all sort of jungle people, right? And they're often stigmatized as such, and they're labeled um, uh, backwards and often discriminated against as such, um, and sort of lumped together. But historically speaking, the relationship between Maroons and Amerindians has been much more complex. Um, and uh, for instance, Amerindians were employed by the um, colonial government um, as to hunt Maroons. Um, at the same time, Maroon communities also would intermarry with Amerindians and set it up, set up trade relationships. And so until until a couple of dec decades ago within Njuka, um, there was a established trade pigeon between the Njuka and their, their nearest uh, indigenous neighbors, the Trio. Um, when it comes to the Hindustani community, they are much more recent migrants. They only start arriving in 18, 1870s um, and were given access to land by the Dutch colonial state as part of certain um, settlement schemes, often in more favorable terms. And so the, the logic, they tend to imagine themselves as embodying a particular kind of cultural order, agricultural order, which is what they sort of ended up uh, pursuing and becoming dominant in the Surinamese economy um, that really sees themselves as opposed to um, these people of the jungle who are then understood as sort of not having the same commitment to an urban civilization or of order. So it's a very complicated set of relationships. As I talk about in the book, um, you also have all these classes of Amerindian spirits, and indeed a number of the more, um, one of the most important uh, and powerful of the Njuka uh, spirits, deities, um, is actually understood to be, or is imagined as, uh, as understood to, to, to at least appear as a Native American. Um, so it's a very complicated set of, 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 of interrelations, but to understand it, we sort of have to we have to begin to understand this entire colonial history and how Surinamese are still trying to work out um, this, I should say the, the, the shadow um, that has been cast by the attempts of European colonialists to set up a very clearly defined racial hierarchy that you know conflated ideas about race and civilization. And the way in which these still dog, you know, dog the way in which Surinamese are capable, um, or not capable, but are um, are given a language of thinking about themselves because of that history. What does your book say about suspicion 
what does your book teach us about skepticism? How are skepticism and suspicion similar and different from each other? And how does the setting of Suriname elaborate this? Yeah, excellent um, question. So, in terms of suspicion versus skepticism, that's um, I think that's a that's a that's a that's a difficult um, a question. One of the things I wanted to say was that, as I alluded to earlier, um, there's often a sense that skepticism is a property of modernity. It's a property of, let's say, the Enlightenment. Um, and how that then relates to suspicion is can be very complicated. So at one level, that kind of skepticism is taken to over override certain other forms of, of more corrosive logics of suspicion, but it often and often abets ideas about suspicion, particularly suspicion of things like uh, superstitious practice, for example, right? Um, and what I, what I wanted to do in the book was show that a these kinds of ritual practices are not are not sort of the 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 province of um, the uninformed of of sort of cultural dupes, as it were, as uh, uh, right, but are actually working out of various complex logics of skepticism that you know almost all the people I worked with are deeply skeptical are deeply skeptical of the practices and the, of these. Um, and, and a lot of this skepticism is part and parcel of this, these, these um, wider um, affective economy of suspicion that I think defines um, Surinamese life. And so people are constantly engaging in these practices because they want them to work. And therefore, they're not necessarily um, simply going to um, give in to any kind of logics of, of any, any, a simple logic of credibility. And so what I think the book teaches us about both suspicion and skepticism is that one, we have to understand these um, as historically contingent phenomena. Two, we have to think about these in relationship to the, 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 the histories of those kinds of uh, of these kinds of practices. Suriname, I don't think that Suriname is any kind of um, monopoly on suspicion or on skepticism, far from it, but that these phenomena are particularly prevalent precisely because of Suriname's history as a racial capitalist plantation society, whereby Europeans used, uh, brought in different ethnic groups um, consciously cultivated um, suspicion and antagonism between these groups in order to govern, such that this is a um, still a, a um, sort of a dominant theme in everyday Surinamese life. Um, but importantly, I think it's that sense that you know European social thought which would often try to lay sort of unique claim to skepticism, cannot do that. That so much of what makes the practices of things like spirit mediumship productive are the way in which people remain skeptical, right? Are the ways in which they are using um, habits of suspicion to create certain kinds of skeptical stances to evaluate these practices, but are also willing to extend them to themselves. 
And so I think one of the ways I I uh, the I end the book is to really sort of talk about how it is that these very discourses that would sort of um, keep skepticism the unique preserve of, uh, let's say, a certain kind of modern European um, scientific and philosophical inquiry are sort of missing the point, missing about how integral those very um, those very sort of um, uh, those very very practices and affects are to just elementary ritual practice around the world. How can your book teach us something about self that would challenge other ways of thinking about self? How is the concept of self understood differently in Surinamese or Surinamer Hindu culture vis-a-vis -vis other understandings of self? So, yeah, that's a great question. It really relates um, intimately to the previous question about suspicion and skepticism. So what I really wanted to do in the book was to talk about how we get to sort of these um, ontological descriptions of the core of selfhood, ones that we often talk about in terms of, let's say, soul, um, um, for instance, the way in which those are also practices of self-knowledge that are often intimately bound up with questions of suspicion and skepticism. That people come to know themselves as, let's say, like in the Hindu tradition that you just referenced, as primarily and irreducibly souls, transcendent souls, um, that this is in fact actually the result of a very specific practice of, of self reflection or ritual reflection that is often bound up with these larger uh, practices of social suspicion and skepticism as well. Um, of course, the skepticism is not necessarily of the, to the, of the ritual dynamics, but precisely of the things that fall outside of them, or the, the, the kinds of everyday practices of um, problematic knowledges, misrecognitions that these ritual revelations show to people such that they can then orient to themselves as, let's say, first and foremost, a transcendental soul. So um, the book is really trying to say, well, we often, in the literature, we often just take something like, let's say, the soul, and we take that maybe as to some extent synonymous in a complicated way with the self, but we don't think about, well, where that comes from. We don't think about it as something that could be practically known or how people think they know it or understand it. And what I try to do in the book is to show that this, there are very specific practices that then um, can use prevalent contexts of social suspicion, prevalent um, stances of skepticism to reveal people as particular kinds of cells and different kinds of cells. And that these cells are not necessarily the kind of um, uh, generally imagined sort of um, uh, shrewd white male skeptic that is, you know, sort of often, I think, the default image of, let's say, a, a modern knower, right? But can actually be a very different kind of self altogether, like um, a transcendental soul in the Hindu tradition who is often understood to be identical with, you know, sort of the, the supreme being, right? Um, or within the Afro-Surinamese tradition, for example, that you could imagine yourself as a composite of multiple different kinds of souls and spirits. And that that's not just something that 
it's not just something that it's not just the a statement, but it's something that people feel and live, and they know through precisely these practices like spirit mediumship that are constantly using suspicion and skepticism um, to create the conditions under which people can actually think about themselves and feel themselves as being beings of that sort. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on next as a current project? Can you tell us about your subsequent work now that this research is behind you? Oh yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, well, um, what I'm doing now, because I am I am based in Singapore and have been based in Singapore for um, the last six and a half years, is a project that's thinking about some of these same themes, at least in a very generic sense, particularly the problem of other minds and um, knowledge about others um, through um, these similar kinds of questions of spirit mediumship, but also of non-human animals in Singapore. So what I'm trying to do is I'm um, I've just started writing a book um, that is trying to reimagine how we understand control um, in through the everyday practices of wildlife management in Singapore and everyday ritual practices of devotees engaging with non-human deities um, that are still very popular in, in Singapore. So the point of the project is to sort of both um, to take a lot of what I do in the book, which is um, give sort of fine-grained analysis, of particular interactions to try to understand what's going on within them, and to do that both with a multi-species, right, particularly human interactions with macaques, macaque monkeys in Singapore, which is um, happens constantly every day, as well as people's interactions with spirit mediumship, to ask the question about, well, where is control in these relationships um, or these interactions? And how does by sort of taking apart and trying to reimagine what control means there, then allow us to think about various practices of um, social and ecological engineering that actually define contemporary Singaporean society. So I'm still at the very early stages of this, and it will undoubtedly change, but that's what I'm working on at present. Wonderful. That sounds like an exceptional project. I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank, thank you, you for everything you invested in this very book, which we've been discussing today. Your erudition is a gift to us all. Thank you very much for having me. It was uh, wonderful to talk to. I, I hope I could, I hope either the book or, or my, you know, my, my, my few words could uh, do justice precisely to the sort of the complexity and, and marvelousness of actually working in Suriname. But um, thank you so very much for having, having me on. And uh, I really appreciated this time to talk about my book. It's been my humble pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Stuart Strange. He is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Yale NUS National University of Singapore College in Singapore. Today, we have been discussing his new book, Suspect Others, Spirit Mediums, Self-Knowledge and Race in Multi-Ethnic Suriname published in Toronto by University of Toronto Press, 2021.